the theme for the afternoon talk is what is Vipassana. Just rather briefly, a little bit of the historical uh, background here and then to the contemporary. In the uh, passage of time and over the centuries, the I would say the religion of uh, Buddhism, especially of uh, monasteries, rituals, ceremonies, merit-making, taking of five uh, precepts, the flowers, the candles, the uh, uh, incense, the learning of Pali and the chanting gradually dominated more and more in the passage of the cent of the passage of the centuries. And there were not many, but a few monks who felt very little uh, connection with that and instead and endeavoured to keep in touch with some of the original spirit of a free way of life which really included um, meditation as part of that expression and exploration. So a number of monks Thailand, Burma, Sri Lanka, Buddhist countries would kind of drift away from the forms of the religion and all that went along with it and engage using some of the tools that the Buddha offered in that uh, exploration of the inner life. And out of that they took a word uh, to give identity or to name and that word was Vipassana. Initially, according to the records, according to my conversations with uh, respected and senior monks during my own years as a monk, that initially it was very much a rather solitary individual kind of practice and quite often in the, in the jungle, in a, a remote hut, um, far from places. And out of that, some gradually and slowly and that's also within the last two or three generations, in fact, it came ab about some kind of uh, organization, M meaning there was an interest to bring back the practice of meditation for insight, which is what the word means, into initially the life of monks and nuns. And so some of those monks who had been living a rather detached life from the mainstream <coughs> came into the Dharma practice, uh, sorry, into the Vipassana uh, sense of what it means and the postures and re-brought it back. Rather similarly happened, of course, uh, previously as well with Dzogchen in Tibetan Mahayana Buddhism, broke, breaking away from a lot of the religious forms and getting back to meditation practices called Dzogchen happening in Zen as well the breaking away from a lot of the religious forms to uh, putting the emphasis on uh, Zen and from that the association has now become coming to the temporary just for a moment that uh, Vipassana has become both in uh, a number of Buddhist uh, countries, 
<coughs> as well as among a number of Westerners, um, a viewed, not by all, as a kind of meditation method and technique. <coughs> so the association with it is a technique, a technique of meditation. That is a contemporary usage. There is, and it's fine because that's a contemporary usage, but it doesn't bear any relationship at all in terms of the actual teachings of the Buddha. It has no connection at all with method or technique. The word literally vipassana <coughs> literally means very precisely, it means insight. And just to break the word for a moment, the V, I said yesterday, <coughs> one usage it's separating from. Vijnana. Jnana is knowing. V is separating from. So right now there is a consciousness, Vijnana, of knowing that you are here, that we are in here together, and it's separate from what's going on elsewhere in terms of the condition of the consciousness. Vipassana, V also means doubling. So sometimes it means cutting off from, no judgment of that, and sometimes it means doubling. So doubling the passa, doubling the contact. So when you and I see something clearly, whatever it is, really see something clearly, in the moment or moments of seeing clearly, it's doubling the contact, seeing it clearly, vipassana. And so the dharma of the Buddha, <coughs> from the place, this is what I want to focus and speak with you about today, from the meditation place uh, is one which addresses samatha, forming together sam, like sambodhi, samkara, samadhi, samatha, means the forming, the coming together for calmness and for relaxation, there. One very important aspect. And in that receptivity, through our practice of calmness and relaxation and stillness and depth, it increases the opportunity for vipassana to arise. This is the original meaning. So samatha vipassana is such that calm and depth of experience are very important, but the Buddha took a fresh look at meditation <coughs> from his experience and said, and said regularly enough, it isn't just the experience, say, of a deep meditation, of real joy and calm, of a sense of oneness and well-being, valuable and beautiful as that is, but more importantly is the insight which comes out of it. The quality of the experience in these profound and beautiful experiences which includes the opening of consciousness, it includes the oneness, it includes the sense of palpable silence, it uh, includes the sense of 
infinite space and many other precious experiences, spiritual and beautiful, but all of those experiences, without exception, since they are formed together in the Sam, that means coming together, Samadhi, and in the meeting of them together, which can have such an impact for us, and the variety of words that we use about them, nevertheless, it's the insight around which really matters. If the insight do not emerge from experiences, the experiences, since they are formed, will dissolve and will enter into memory. They will enter into it anyway, of course, and if they are entering into the memory, no matter if they last an hour, a minute, for days or whatever, <coughs> if the insight haven't emerged about what those experiences are revealing clearly enough, it will, be, it will easily happen that the tendency will be to want to repeat the experience to confirm its validity, to have it again, because in that experience it was profound, it was deep, it was a great sense of openness, it was a wonderful sense of being, or a profound sense of the now, many, it was reality, many words that we, it was the finding of God, discovery of truth. I mean, human beings have a whole reservoir of words to describe the profound experience. But in the fading, to repeat, in the fading away, if the insights haven't emerged from it, probably we'll want it again. And it's terribly easy to carry the memory into the meditations and almost be looking to repeat it. I had, I can imagine how many times I've heard this. I've had this wonderful, the I says, I had this wonderful experience on this retreat or on another retreat or in the nature or taking ayahuasca or going to <laughs> India, you know, whatever the causal thought might be. And the carrying of the memory is, can I have this in some way in my meditation practice? There. <clears throat> so the, the Buddha recognized this issue and therefore valued equally samatha vipassana, not referring to it as a technique, but referring to the insights which come. Then was asked, and, and another important aspect of vipassana practice, is it that in a way with my meditation practices that essentially I am meditating, say, on the breath or on the body or just being or expansive awareness or observation of thought or working with the feelings, whatever the primary object or no object of just expansive awareness is it. I'm just doing that which would be called calmness meditation. Metta is a calmness meditation as well as benefit. Am I just doing that 
as regularly and as sincerely as possible waiting for the insight to come. So I meditate, I sit, I walk, I stand. That's reducing the stress in me, it's reducing the unhappiness, I get the sense of well-being and in that natural deepening, this is the samatha, depth of calm, a sense of serenity, is it that the insight will then emerge out of it. I'll suddenly see things which I had not seen before clearly. And the Buddha has given a very strong affirm affirmative yes to this kind of vipassana. Receptivity and the insight comes. We know that in the openness or in the receptivity that comes during a retreat and in other environments and at the end of it, it, it genuinely can be in being touched by the experience of the silence, teachings and especially the meditations. We reach the end of the weekend retreat, one week, one month, ten days, six months, whatever it might be. And there is a great sense of uh, openness that's with it. There's a lot of calm and relaxation, really feeling content and well-being. But it also carries with it a certain vulnerability. And the vulnerability is small things can happen. And because we are rather open and therefore rather vulnerable, something can be said or something happen that seems to hurt or cause us some agitation or evoke some reaction really quickly. The openness is precious and beautiful. The calmness and the serenity and the receptivity is precious and uh, beautiful. But it may well indicate, and most of us had to go through this, may well indicate there isn't enough insight, vipassana, into what it is to feel extraordinarily open. And because the openness isn't supported with uh, the wisdom or the understanding from the insights, because the openness isn't supported with the wisdom and understanding from the uh, insight, we can feel to get kind of blown away. Or, more commonly, we had the experience, open and, uh, and expansive, and which is a lovely human experience, and then we say, oh, how many times have I heard this? Christopher, stay with me for a few days. But then it gradually began to fade away, and then I'm looking around on internet for another retreat to do. The openness is valid. It can't, nothing can stay permanently open. Not consciousness, not inner experience, it would be a step too far to demand or expect that of ourselves. However, can the experience of receptivity and interest, whatever the depth, be the opportunity for some insight to emerge which is not waiting for it to arise. 
And the tradition of India was, you meditate, you meditate, you meditate. This was the yogi tradition. <coughs> Many meditate, meditate. And then, it may happen to you, which there are many words, God's will, grace, cosmic, whatever. It may happen to you that through your meditation practice, something will arise in you which is powerful, which is strong, which, is, which brings about a realization. So we practice to make ourselves receptive, we engage in our meditations, we engage in company with others, whatever, and then in that receptivity, something wants to move almost uh, thunderbolt-like, something, whoa, and it will come through us, and the force of it will wake us up. And this was a classic, still in India, I might have to say, and elsewhere, a classic view of sudden transformation. There's nothing false about it. Some of you here and elsewhere have had the some sudden event that's really waking us up or woke us up in some way or other. But the Buddha's Dharma is not what a Dharma to leave the human being, no matter how sincerely committed to meditation practice, in a condition of calm receptivity waiting for the event. Uh, Buddha is no passiveist in that respect. He said life is the engagement. It's not passive receptivity. And the engagement with life is that we, that is you and me, we can bring a dynamic and engage in the situation to serve as a catalyst for insight and understanding. And this was, as far as I can know from the text, hardly known in India, because the yogi meditated, tried to let go of holding the body, and waited for the event, which was the transformative moment. And the Buddha took a different kind of approach, never rejecting it, wholeheartedly supporting it, and then said, then all was asked and then said, what is it that you and I can bring to the event of meditation which will help to make things exceptionally clear, which will contribute to our liberation? And that uh, engagement meant that you and I bring, so to speak, which I'll touch upon in a minute, bring something to the event. Therefore, I'm not passive. I'm an active, I'm an active participant in the process of realizing things. And in that, he took what he referred to as some uh, characteristics of life. And the language is extremely precise. Uh, I don't know of any teaching on this earth where the language is so precise. He didn't say taking realities, characteristic features which you and I tend to know about. So, there's some depth of meditation, 
some profound experience which is taking place. We know it's not an eternal event, it can't last forever. How would I want to view that? And I have to view it from the standpoint that the way that it is. And obviously one simple and fairly self-evident factor with uh, such experiences is what is it revealing? If I d it, the, the <coughs> uh, one minute sideways step. The Buddha uses the word upadana. Upadana literally means grasping. But it means grasping. And in, in, if you take the split, the word upadana, it means to take hold of. And when you and I, or two humans, take hold of an experience, the comparison is there is, shall we say, the fire of the experience. Whoa, something's really touching us. There is the fire of experience, and the taking hold of it is the wood on the fire. When we grab it, we build it up. And when we build it up, we can build it up, if it's a spiritual one, into a huge status. Huge status, because we've built it up. And with the building of it up, the I will enter into it. I had this a most amazing experience. Or, I am, we did this the other day with the talk, this, that and the other. There. There is the encouragement not to take hold of the experience, this is important, because the I will build on it and either want it again or make some claims about it, which is both are problematic. Or, in the relationship to any valuable experience that uh, we have, we want to be able to see the experience clearly, either at the time or immediately uh, afterwards. And the experience, and the, one of the important aspects is, it is a break from the other experience. Into this, to say. It's a break from the ordinary, everyday experience. The only way I know an experience is really important for me, the only way I know it, because it's different from the previous experiences, which were miserable and mundane. So now I'm having some deeper experience, which is beautiful, and if I can sense it well and clearly enough, it's a shift away from the other experiences which helps to show to me that all these other experiences are all relative. If I think the world is all in conflict and confusion and anguish and life is suffering and it's all miserable and I've got to struggle through my life and then I'm going to, going to die and then when I'm dead there'll just be a little stone and it'll have my date of birth, my date of death and between it there'll be a little squiggle which is the mark of my whole life. <laughs> and if one takes that kind of view 
which some people take in the Buddhist world. One t- apologies to the Buddhists. One takes that kind of view, but then one has an experience which says life, I'm not making it absolute, life is one, life is a wonder, life is extraordinary, all is in harmony, life is awesome, it is precious. It's not that that view is a more absolute or ultimate view in any way, because that fades as the painful ones do. It only reminds us and shows us, it's the important thing, that the experience and the view is something which is relative for other experiences and other views. Who is going to be so bold as to say this experience and this view is the real one and the other isn't? Who is going to say oneness or, is, or the now or whatever is the authentic one and the others aren't? In the time of the experience, whatever the experience is, but at that time they both, it, whatever it is, does experience to be rather authentic. Hence the Buddha says, one of the truths of life, truth of life, is that there is suffering in this world. And the word dukkha has a twofold meaning in the root, du. It means, uh, gosh, I forget. <clears throat> um, uh, that which is hollow and unsatisfactory. When you and I are caught up in something, there, whatever it may be about, and sometimes we see through it, we see just how unsatisfactory it is to feed something, to make a problem uh, out of it, and how hollow it was, the imaginings, the conceivings, etc. And dukkha, uh, there, is sometimes we're grabbing hold of something and not seeing through it. So, the engagement with experiences is to be able to put the light of attention on it, to look at it very, very carefully, and that engagement may reveal more than what is apparent. It may just be all that I see about it is it's not worth clinging to. I may just see that, that no experience, deep and precious, problematic as it is, it is simply not worth holding on to. If that is seen well and clearly, without the denial, it's liberating. So the insight which is the engagement in the way of the looking, not passive, passive, is to enable some insight and understanding to come out of it, which is liberating. It's just not worth clinging to.
And the reason it's not worth clinging to is because it's changing. I can't keep the event. Life prevents the human being from ever keeping an event. A situation, a circumstance, or an experience. Life does not permit this. And because it's a truth of life, a process of life, that it doesn't allow holding, human beings, if you and I are to live in accordance with life, and able to move with it, the holding has to end. And there, uh, the exploration of vipassana is to provide the insight which generates an understanding of the futility, the pointlessness, and the essentially being out of touch, with, which is what holding does. The radical nature of the exploration is that the Dharma, the Buddha Dharma uh, here, made such a shift for human beings in the exploration that there was no metaphysic offered. There is no um, monotheistic view. There was no ontology, that means something in itself. There was nothing to go out there and reach and get. Nothing far away. Nothing somewhere else. And that, taking that kind of search away, not promising anything whatsoever, meant that the teachings all relate in a very uh, full and committed way to the relationship that human beings have to this unfolding process which we call dependent arising, which we call change, which we call the flow, which we call events happening, which we call conditions after the conditions, and didn't say it's all a mirage or false or a maya. Didn't promise anything outside of it whatsoever and therefore cut the ground out of uh, religious views and said, this is it. Face up to it. And out of that, facing up to it, which is samatha vipassana, calm and the insight, Natural freedom will emerge, which can't be measured, and it's not separate from the unfoldment of life. In dear old India, and today, this is still an amazing message. He then said, was asked, what? Other things, things, 
What is it in the process of finding the wisdom of which we pass an hour, the insight is a support for? What are three things which you and I need to be careful or mindful or conscious about particularly? And to remember. And one very common uh, one, of course, is the pursuit of pleasure. And this wish of human beings to maximize pleasure and minimize the pain is fraught with problems because it has with it the tendency to project and invest onto people, places, goods, ideas, thought, pardon me, thoughts, a kind of quality or significance which they actually don't have. What's out there cannot actually give us pleasure. If the object, person, place, situation, really could give us pleasure, if that was the truth, then it would always be giving pleasure. Try eating ice cream. Try being around the most beautiful, loving woman on the planet. Try being in the most ideal environment and situation 24-7. If that's giving pleasure, try being with the most handsome, kind, generous, wise Buddha of the Buddhas, morning, noon and night. If, if the pleasure came from, if that was a reality, if it came from, it would have to be going to everybody without exception, which is obviously not the case. And that which is giving us pleasure, it would always be giving pleasure. The object couldn't stop giving pleasure. It would always have to be giving. Go and buy a nice khaki shirt or a nice sari or whatever. It gives, gives pleasure. This gives me pleasure then that would constantly be coming out of it. There ain't no evidence for it. So something in the dynamic, the Buddha says, just be vigilant about the idea, this, whatever it is, gives me pleasure. Because you and I know only too well the same person who gives us pleasure can next be giving us pain in the butt. And we still attribute to the externals. Just to watch this, that's all. To see if you and I can get some insight and understanding into this, in order that a different relationship to life arises, which has with it not the dependency on getting pleasure, but the happiness of the engagement with life. different order. The second for the insight 
for the vipassana into what's happening is the vigilance about the views and not to underestimate the kind of views that we have and it, when there is sometimes with us some insistency on the view and we repeat the insistency whatever it might be upon the view quite often we notice others get reactive we get defensive or we get upset through holding to the view whatever it might be about I have the privilege of sitting here talking to you get a chance for a while everything which is said is a view some may say in the act of the listening to the view I agree, I disagree, I agree with some I don't agree with others I'm not sure if I agree or disagree or some say I prefer deeper meditation than listening to you Christopher etc. All, all is the view fair enough the vigilance of watching what the view is is a, one of the areas where where there is calmness with us there's more opportunity to get some insight into the view and as I say if we repeat the view frequently enough it tends to draw people who might just agree with the view called religion called science called whatever it's called and and then it can make others feel in dispute with the view and then it's called conflict there can't be a conflict without two people holding to a view so if we're going to free ourselves from upadana taking a hold of one aspect of it is looking at our relationship to the world of sentient and insentient life and the field of pleasure and it's not life rejecting it's life affirming because of the happiness that will come and looking at the view uh, which arises and seeing with the, what kind of view as a human being do I tend to repeat what view have I taken a hold of and, and I know I've taken a hold of it because I need to defend it that will tell me and if I need to defend the view I will be in conflict and if I'm in conflict I may have got pleasure from the view I start in conflict with another with the view and from that I'll get irritated and when the view gets held even stronger I'll start to get angry and when the view is held even stronger I'll start to get violent and when the view is held even stronger I'll kill you for my view it didn't start from nowhere it started from holding to an idea this is good this gives me pleasure this gives us pleasure this is what I want and from that particular position I'll kill you for it and therefore there can't be violence 
without the view. And the Buddha asks of us to look and to question and to see the hunt for pleasure and the cost. And the cost, of course, is destroying the earth, as we know. The outcome of holding to pleasure and the pleasure of one's superior way of life, and all that gives a certain pleasure that some people find in that, which will correspondingly project a view about others. And the third, for insight, for clarity, for vipassana, he said, is to ask ourselves in certain situations, what is it that I am not seeing? What is it that I am not seeing? And if you and I take the field of uh, pleasure, explore the view, question what is it that I am not seeing, these three areas have for us an immense potential to really open up our life. To really have a different sense of things in which the constructions of my feelings and my views are not actually blocking from seeing how this world is. The constructions of my feelings and my views, pleasure and views and not seeing clearly whatever, I can explore and kind of work through that or see through it or go beyond Vipassana element. Another kind of understanding comes in about life, which is not bound up with the field of pleasure, not bound up with holding to views, and it's not bound up with me not seeing clearly. And that exploration, in a way, while appreciating the wonderful value of experience, because we can get so much authority from experience. But what's precious about it is, I don't, and another great aspect of the teaching here, I don't have to rely on a particular experience. I don't have to say to myself or to others, I am waiting to have a really profound experience, because the ordinary experience is already enough. And I don't have to say, I have had a most profound experience, and that's it. It is not it. It's a profound experience. It is that. That we can say, in some cases. But to take a hold of it, and make the profound experience some absolute truth, is a view. Even experiences, precious and beautiful as they are, without exception, are to be treated respectfully, intimately, not grabbed hold of, in order that we can move, how? Freely. I don't need a profound experience to move freely through life. I think it's a wonderful teaching. I don't need a profound experience to move freely through life. 
And the most common form of realization, making something real, I don't want to dishearten the dedicated meditators here, didn't happen on the meditation cushion. Apologies for that. For most, in history, not only the wisdom of the Buddha, in history, the insight or the understanding came listening. Human beings sometimes just listened, realized that freedom and the process of life go completely together, they're not in conflict with each other, and human, some human beings just listen, and that was clear. Clear that in such a way that the clarity there, something stayed steady and deep about it. And she or he may never have meditated in their life. What a blessing. Never spent hours on the cushion struggling with their thoughts and their needs. Never had great depths of samadhi. Never had great transpersonal, transformative, medical, blow-your-mind experiences. Just listened. Ah! And in the exploration of this, this finally, <coughs> with the Dharma's shift, and when asked, the Buddha here, what's worth knowing about, he didn't ever say, oh, having the single experience, even though he himself got associated with it through a misfortune of history where people say but Gautama how can you say that you had some experience under the tree it is probably on this planet the most famous single experience that ever happened to anybody and people say the Buddha quite often they go the tree they didn't know anything else but something happened to the guy under the tree <laughs> there loads of us have sat under trees <laughs> but we're not even a footnote in history and this guy Gautama two and a half thousand years ago he sits under the tree and the whole damn planet knows about it. Some good public relations went on there, right? To say. Anyway, sorry for the tangent. The Buddha's not going for the singular experience. It's not the, not the Dharma of the Buddha. So when asked what is worth knowing, he spoke of three areas. And they're rather... The three knowledges, as you call it, the three uh, areas. And part of the fulfillment of the human being is genuinely expressing or exploring the three there. One of them, 
how events come to be. The capacity of the human being to reflect and look back and see how events unfold and develop and change and grow and decline and emerge and become present and to use this capacity for recollection of roles and identities and Dharma language would be called past lives, that means roles and identities and formations that influence us, which taking shape, we're touching upon it every day in our experience, and the way that all of that is bearing some impact or fruit in the present. So this is worth knowing about. So it's not a teaching of denial nor cutting off or rejecting the past. Secondly, what's worth knowing? What's worth knowing about is the depth of human experience. To go deep. To really uh, find some uh, depth in human experience. Yesterday evening, some of the teachers, and, uh, a good team of coordinators and others we had with some chai and gulab jamans and the sweet things of India, some uh, discussion over in the uh, chai wallace uh, shop uh, uh, there. And the uh, idea was uh, put forward here for, ne for next year <coughs> that we'll have a, a combination of a silent uh, uh, retreat, so there are about 20 people who stay along the cells, women and men uh, there, and I'll talk with the Bhante, and to have a silent re uh, retreat, and also have the Dharma uh, gathering, and we're discussing some of the forms uh, there in the silent retreat, receive their food, do a really silent retreat, to have a teacher to work uh, with them, giving guided meditations, one-to-one -one meetings and uh, meditation instruction and for eight days out of, out of the ten days all being well in the uncertain world that we live in and sometimes, and uh, make it as a reference point here sometimes the uh, uh, exploration and the practice of that and the silence and stillness of, of that when women and men are committed to that also I find, and hopefully you do too, that it gives support, it acts as an extra focus for everybody coming into this environment, knowing that there's people who are sitting, uh, in this case an eight-day silent retreat, who would then join the groups and other things in the last uh, two, uh, two days. And all of that, why to deepen experience? Why to really listen to the wealth and the richness of our inner life. Why to come to some insight and understanding with samatha, calmness of being, insight, vipassana, contributing to wisdom and understanding, contributing to freeing us up. And that, and that depth of experiences, in the plural, is an important aspect of our practice and there is not just one of them. We should bear that in mind. And finally and thirdly, greatly important obviously, that authentic sense 
of a genuinely liberated way of life. And I find, if I may say for myself, <coughs> um, I'm often, uh, often, sometimes, less so these days, thank goodness, um, described as a vipassana teacher. I haven't used that description of myself for lifetimes, but sometimes it kind of hangs around uh, in the air. And my association, it doesn't have to be for everybody, my association, because of the association with the Theravada uh, world, of much of which I have much love and gratitude for, tends to be a little bit around method and technique and form there. But the Dharma of the Buddha, as I mentioned earlier, is a free way of life, has never adopted the view, just meditate, 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 purify, purify yourself, and when you've meditated enough and purified yourself, then you will be liberated. That, that is just not in the teaching. If it was in the teaching, if that was the view, then someone like me is absolutely duty-bound to make sure you never, your bum never leaves a meditation cushion so that you can be purified and be liberated, etc. And everything else would be a distraction. It would mean that in the language of the four truths of the noble ones, not four noble truths, it's a mis... there's nothing noble about suffering, but human, but noble, those who live a noble way of life, give attention to these truths of life. It would have to mean there is suffering, one. Two, there are causes and conditions, second, noble truth, major truth of life, truth of the noble ones. Third, there is the resolution, and fourthly, it is sitting on the meditation cushion, working out your stuff. I can't see that anywhere. It's a free way of life. It's an exploration. An exploration which includes every aspect of our life. So in the body of the Dharma, we could say, our meditation and all the commitment and I put some emphasis with you today is really valuable it's really important but it's like the body here I could say look, my arm and my hand is really important but it's important it's in relationship to the rest and if I as a human being just say well only the arm and hand only vipassana is important only sitting and walking is important Actually, I've just cut myself off from the rest of the exploration about understanding, about love, uh, about livelihood, about lifestyle, about way of being in the world, about mindfulness, and many other features of the Dharma, which do not, and action in the world, which is such an important feature of the teaching, do not necessarily relate directly or in any obvious way to just meditating. And the problem with the tradition, which I know as well as any Westerner on this planet, the problem with the tradition, it is exaggerated the world of 
the meditation cushion, that people think practice is meditating. Practice includes, but doesn't isolate. And we have to find ways and means in our, <coughs> pardon me, exploration to keep in mind a free way of life amidst the unfolding events which take place and not grasp. That's all. And that's the dynamic and the challenge uh, of all of us and of the Sangha to keep that vitality uh, alive while paying the fullest of respect to the extraordinary range of human experiences including those, some of those lovely spiritual ones which I've just referred to. And if we can stay true to that then the Buddha Dharma is clear, it's immediate and it's beautifully obvious. May all beings live with calm and insight. May all beings explore the unfolding processes of life. May all beings know an authentic liberation through non-clinging. Let's have a quiet minute, shall we?